You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media on this fine Wednesday, January 30th. We are almost done with the first month of this year. It feels like just one day with this just protracted border fight. I'm really proud of all the work we've been able to do together here over the last year, tying together the border, illegal immigration, sanctuary cities, interior enforcement, drugs, the cartels, terrorism, crime, criminal justice deform, all of it coming together in a spectacular way. All of our theses, all of our points you now see actually playing out, certainly in our spectacular show yesterday with Sheriff Mark Daniels. If you haven't heard it yet, um, it's episode 346. It's something you will never hear elsewhere um, in the in the sphere of media. Um one of the things that ties in is Latin American affairs. We've always bemoaned the fact that you know someone who sneezes in the Middle East creates an entire chain of events where our entire military, intel apparatus, strategic focus, statecraft, diplomacy all revolves around that. Yet for years, we've just ignored our own hemisphere and all the threats but and potential um, potential good things that could come out of better engagement, smarter engagement, better focus, and how that all ties back into the border. So today, we're going to take this out a little bit further than the border to Venezuela. You obviously obviously have this coup going on against Maduro. Terrible guy. Um, I apologize for not addressing this. We haven't had a Foreign Policy Friday show in a couple of weeks. It's just been too crazy, too much going on. But if you remember last year much less than a year ago, just a couple of months ago, we had on our show a resident Latin American expert, particularly on the counterterrorism component of it, Joseph Humeyer. And he predicted that Venezuela was going to blow up. And he was warning about this for a long time. And like everything we predict or we have people on the show predicting, it comes true. So I figured we'd have him back again. Joseph, as you remember, is executive director of the Secure Free Society, really one of the foremost experts on terrorism in Latin America. We're going to link to his book, Iran's Strategic Penetration of Latin America. But today we're going to focus on Venezuela in particular. Hey, Joseph, great to have you back with us. Daniel, it's a pleasure to be on, and and thanks for the introduction. Yeah, I mean, it's been way too long, and I figure rather than just catching up offline, we may as well just uh, record this for a show. So I'll be very honest with you. You you know I'm not one to shy away from strong views. I'm usually pretty clear about what I think we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, and why. When it comes to Venezuela, um, I'm really very befuddled because on the one hand... You know, this is something we've been longing for for a while. Getting rid of Maduro is the b- biggest menace in our own hemisphere. Um, the need to get involved more in Latin America as opposed to the Middle East. This would seem to be that very opportunity. But on the other hand, because we failed to build 
all of the necessary statecraft in place for so many years that would make any engagement there work. And you already have Russia and China there. I'm a, I'm a little bit concerned about what we should be doing there. And I'm, 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 you know, and I think all of us are in need of some guidance. So if you could just start off laying out what's going on there, who are the players and what we should be concerned about before we kind of, you know, come up with a action plan. Sure. Uh, I think first, um, I think what your listeners need to understand is who, who exactly were uh, fighting in Venezuela, who were up against in Venezuela. Um, and then the second thing they need to understand is what kind of fight is this? Uh, on the first point, um, we're not fighting Nicolas Maduro. Uh, we're not even really in, you know, in a conflict with the Maduro regime per se. Just like you could say in Syria, we're not just in a conflict with the Bashar al-Assad regime. If you think of Syria as an analogy, you know, who are we in conflict with in Syria? We're in conflict with Russia. We're in conflict with Iran, Hezbollah, Turkey. Well, those same actors uh, are the same actors that we're in conflict with in Venezuela. Uh, the only difference is that's uh, 1,200 miles from our shores, so that's a lot closer to, to, to Syria or anything else in, in the Middle East. So we're not – so Maduro uh, does not control the, the fate or the outcome of Venezuela, much less than Juan Guaido, the new interim president of Venezuela controls the outcome as well. Those are proxies that are being uh, utilized in, in different capacities for whatever conflict this is going to turn out to be. And that's the second point. The second point is what kind of conflict is this? What, what kind of war is this? This is not a conventional military war. This is an asymmetric war. It makes no sense in the world to fight an asymmetric war with conventional military forces. So for those that are thinking about U.S. 10 troops or military deployments, I mean, that's a waste of time, energy and resources. Um, and that goes the same for all the regional allies, Colombia, Brazil and all the others. An asymmetric war is fundamentally fought on a different playing field, which is not a physical playing field. It's actually a, a, a more of a moral playing field. So we have, we, we're, in the, we're in the battle for legitimacy in Latin America, and we're also in the battle for swaying public opinion. But the public opinion isn't necessarily against the Maduro regime. He has no legitimacy. No one, no one, I mean, that's recognized, I think, through the last uh, uh, you know, recognition of Juan Guaido as president, where more than 50 countries have recognized him. But since we are not fighting the Maduro regime, we are fighting Russia, Iran, China, Turkey. We have to – the job of the United States and everybody that's in, in favor of Westphalian kind of order, just democratic state, sovereign states, has to fight against Russia, Iran, China, Turkey throughout Latin America. Until the Latin American countries say we no longer want to do business with China, we no longer want to engage in military cooperation with Russia, and forget about these Iranian crazies that are running around our countries. Until the Latin American countries say that, we're not going to win this battle. And that's a battle that's fought off public opinion and is not fought off conventional military actions. No, and I think that that's a good foundation for this discussion. When you look at what what's going on, can you just give us a quick update on what is the state of play who is this one? For first of all, who is this Juan Guaido guy? Is he yeah. someone worth supporting? How did he come to power? Um, you know, how much support is there for him versus Maduro? Where is this headed? At you know, divorced from the discussion of what we should do, just all the facts on the ground. Yeah. So uh, what happened is last May, um, essentially there was an election in Venezuela, but it was a fraudulent election, like there have been many in the past. But this was the probably the, the last election that anyone could really even point to. 
that was completely illegitimate. There, there was no opposing candidate. The people that were allowed to run for candidate were people that were handpicked by the regime. The National Assembly, the, basically the legislative body, had been dissolved months before that. So the entire international community just disavowed that election, didn't recognize it. The only people that cared about it were the regime, Maduro regime itself. And so because that last election was uh, illegitimate, then the constitution of Venezuela, which was crafted by the socialists, crafted by Chavez and, him, and his cronies, the constitution of Venezuela says, according to Article 233, the constitution says that um, the, the the next in line to, to be in president goes through the National Assembly and it goes through uh, the equivalent to what we would be our Speaker of the House. And so that's where Juan Guaido comes in, because he literally was the next in line in, in terms of the uh, secession to power if you don't acknowledge uh, the, the last election. So who is Juan Guaido? Juan Guaido is a member of a party called the Popular Popular Volunteer Voluntad Popular. He's, uh, if you remember, Leopoldo Lopez was the politician that was jailed in the 2014 uprising. So he's from that same political party. Uh, he's a young individual. He's only 35 years old. He's been a member of Congress. I'm not sure for how long, but it's you know not too long. We have three or four or five years. And he's an individual that really, you know, he, he's risen to the occasion. But I mean, this is not his conflict that he's going to win on his own. I mean, he really is he's a 35-year-old politician that's positioning himself now to to stand as a legitimate government that's going to be recognized by more than 50 countries. So that, that's, that's kind of where it stands on its end. But I, I think for some people, you know, I've heard some comments on Twitter and social media other that say this is a U.S.-backed coup. That's um, uh, absolutely not true. For one, there is no coup. There's no coup in Venezuela. This is the constitutional action. This is what the constitution says should happen. So there's just the, 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 the natural proceedings of what the constitution mandates when you don't have an illegitimate election. And then number two is, um, you know, the, the parts of the, that same tweet that say that, you know, it says U.S. back coup to install a far right dictator or far right politician in Latin America. So one quite, I would, you know, in, in the U.S. political spectrum, he would, political spectrum, he would be considered center left he, he is anything from a far right uh, so, so he's not like bolsonaro no he's not he's far from bolsonaro <laughs> he, you know he's his party actually belongs to like the international socialist coalition or whatever that's called so the, i mean they're not i mean they're, they're you're not going to find many right-wing politicians in in venezuela there's one maria Karina machado but other than her the rest of them are just variations of the left and that's been one of the struggles and problems with that country is, you know, beyond all the chaos and um, the economic turmoil, the ideas that Chavez espoused 20, 20, 20 some odd years ago has really penetrated society. And people have very socialist views on a lot of things involving um, the, the government and the way governance works. So, so I mean, because this is very important, a lot of even, you know, close friends of mine, people that are aligned politically, I think, with where you and I are, a lot of them are really getting very into it and saying, Wow, look at these uprisings. Obviously, the president is talking about it. Um, all the people on the right in our country are very supportive of the the mass protest. But are you suggesting that it's they're not really, you know, it's not this organic uprising against the Chavez style, Maduro style socialism, and they have this, you know, big hero in Juan Guaido. It's more just the illegitimacy of the election, you know, so this guy would be the next in line and Maduro's fighting it, and it's more of a a power struggle where there's not much, there, there's not much we could support there. No, no, no. Let me let me be clear. I'm not necessarily saying that. Well, it, it is. Uh, let me see if I could phrase this correctly. It is an uprising of discontent and complete dissatisfaction with the Maduro government. 
it also is a rejection of socialism, but a rejection of uh-huh. socialism doesn't necessarily mean an embrace of capitalism. Got it. Um, uh, so, so they are. I think they're rejecting the failed economic policies that they've seen. I mean, the, the scarcity, the the malnutrition, the, the the inflation. I mean, these are all things going through the roof. We're talking about one million inflation last year. The IMF predicts ten million this year. Ninety percent of the country living in poverty. So. 100 percent, they're they're rejecting the socialist policies that have implemented the country, and they blame that 100 percent on Nicolas Maduro. But does that mean that they really understand free market capitalism and they've now propped up a free market leader? That's a little bit too far. They, they have not done that. Nevertheless, I think that, you know, in a country where you don't have all these, uh, you know, perfect options, I think, yeah, the people are standing up. But my, my point that I try to make to most of our policymakers is that the, this kind of uprising and this kind of uh, uh, popular discontent has we've seen it before. It happened in 2017. It happened in 2014. And right now, to be honest with you, I don't think the center of gravity is with the people right now of Venezuela. I think they're important, and, and obviously, I, I, I sympathize with their struggle and their flight. And I think we should support them rhetorically. But the the, the critical factors of what's going to happen in Venezuela are dictated by countries like Iran, Russia, uh, China, Turkey, and the people aren't necessarily protesting that. I don't know if they really fully understand how much sovereignty that Venezuela has lost and how much is in the hands of these extra regional actors. (laughs) It's funny to hear you say that because like I'm thinking, you know, we think these people are a bunch of, you know, know know-nothings in these third world countries. But in America, I mean, how many Americans understand how much of our sovereignty has been lost? It's it's kind of a a similar thing that, you know, whenever you have a leftist president, you know, our country rejects it. And really do. You saw this in the midterm elections with Obama. But what they affirmatively do support, and if they understand the mutual exclusivity of some of their kind of views, well, I don't like open borders, I don't like what Obama's doing, but then they go and you know vote for certain things that really contradict their opposition to the first thing. So you're saying it's it's really no different from what we see in America. It's just you know there's even weaker institutions. Yeah, it's just to a to a you know just a deeper degree in a much more you know chaotic uh, circumstance. But I mean we have to remember. I mean I think what President Reagan said. You know freedom is always one generation away from being lost. So this can happen anywhere in the world. I mean, it happened in Venezuela. And if you talk to the Venezuelans 30, 40 years ago, they would have never guessed this happened to a country that one of the, the richest countries in the world uh, with the vast amount of oil reserves. I mean, that one of the reasons this happened was the naivete of the Venezuelan people who really un- underestimated Hugo Chavez. They thought he was a clown. They thought he's not that serious, that he'll try to do things, but eventually they'll get rid of him. And, you know, 20, 25 years later, I mean, this is what we have. And so I think we can, no, no country can pretend that this can't happen to them. In the United States, obviously, we have stronger institutions and a stronger fabric, but you know that that fabric's being tested right now by the same people that created the Venezuelan mess. What what are the battle lines right now? In other words, if if you look if you look at a map of Syria, so you know, all right, okay, Assad's here, um, Hezbollah's here, um, IRGC is there, the Turks are in the north, the Far East, Northeast. You got you got the um, uh, the the Kurds. Yeah. Is it clear that Maduro is still um, physically in control of the country? So, yeah. So, you know, the one thing that's important to understand is how their armed forces work. 
the military in Venezuela no longer works like a, a traditional military where you have the Army, the Navy, and, and the Marines and Air Force. Um, they divide it into what's called regional combat teams. Actually, the U.S., we do the same thing. When, like, when we were in Iraq, we didn't have Army, Navy, Air Force all divided. It was you know RCT-1, RCT-2, RCT-3. So in Venezuela, they have these regional combat teams that are spread, basically geographically spread throughout uh, the country of uh, Venezuela, and they, and they control geographic territories. Uh, and so right now, we don't have a civil conflict in Venezuela, like a civil war type scenario in Venezuela, although we're heating up to that scenario. So if the armed forces were to turn against Maduro, which is what I think everybody's been waiting for, then that we would see where those battle lines are drawn. We would see which regional teams split and which directions and which ones fight against which. And then we would see something more to Syria where we see like, you know, presence of ex- irregular forces here, presence of the anti-Maduro resistance there. What I can tell you right now, as far as we haven't seen the civil conflict erupt yet in Venezuela in terms of physical land battle, but what we see is this. We see there's two strategic areas in Venezuela in terms of natural resources. You know, we all know that Venezuela produces a lot of oil, and that's in this place called the Orinoico Belt. It's right around the heart of Venezuela. It's right in the center, maybe the north northeast uh, center of Venezuela um, that uh, spreads through from, from the, there's a big river that cuts through Venezuela called the Orinoco that spreads on, on, on the western side of the Orinoco River. Now that's where all that heavy crude is. That's where all the oil is. And ironically, or not, not ironically, but that's where the Russians and the Chinese have the most of their investments and presence. So that's, that is a strategic area of Venezuela. On the other side of the Orinoco River, on the eastern side, is the biggest gold reserves. Uh, I don't want to say in the world, but it's one of the biggest gold reserves in the world and, one of, and certainly one of the biggest in Latin America, where you have uh, mining concessions. Um, and this is getting closer to the border with Guyana and Brazil and the, and the Amazon region. Mm-hmm. is called Roraima region of Venezuela. And who do we have there? We have Iran and Turkey. You know, So in the two strategic centers of, of Venezuela, where it's the oil and it's the gold, you have Russia, China, Iran, and Turkey that are controlling the scenario there through binational companies. The other part of Venezuela everyone wants to focus on is the borders, because uh, particularly the border with Colombia and the border with Guyana. And those borders are being contested by Maduro in very different facets, legally and also physically. And I think one of the concepts of this plan that the regime has and all their external backers to be able to create conflict uh, and push it out into the region is to blur the lines between the borders. They, I think they want to create conflicts along the borders. They want to provoke the Colombian military, the Brazilian military to act uh, 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 on the border and then basically uh, drive destabilization along those borders so that they can extend the conflict out throughout the rest of Latin America, um, which, you know, kind of, if you look at it from a macro perspective throughout the region, this isn't too much different than what the caravans are doing in Central America or what other folks are doing out of Bolivia. I mean, it's this concept is if you can challenge borders, if you could challenge the geographic lines, you challenge sovereignty. And if you could challenge sovereignty, you can break down the Westphalian system. And I think there's a grand strategy along those lines. So uh, I'm just looking at at this now. It's pretty clear that Juan Guaido, you know, doesn't have control of anything, right? I mean, he no, the, no, the military no. is still under um, Maduro's control, and you know he's obviously still in power. What do you take of the news from today when he says he's willing to negotiate with Guaido? Who Maduro? 
Yeah. You know, I think that's a trick. Um, you know, negotiations in Venezuela <laughs> have been nothing more than just trying to buy time and buy buy and save face so that they can develop capabilities more. I mean, if you if you know, I know a lot of people weren't paying attention to Venezuela like two three years ago, but the big news from the State Department then was oh we can negotiate with the Maduro regime to release the political prisoners, and that lasted for years and nothing happened. So I think negotiations is a failed approach. Uh, I very much think that the, the direction that the Maduro regime is going to go is that they're going to try to mediate this conflict through one of their external backers, whether that be Russia, or. but I particularly think it's going to be Turkey. I think Erdogan's going to get more involved. I think one of the reasons that he invested quite a bit into the Venezuelan gold mine is so that he can say he has uh, economic interest in Venezuela that need to be protected, and therefore he needs to be, uh, he's a stakeholder, and being that Turkey is part of the NATO uh, alliance, and the, it, it provides them kind of more fodder to be able to create this the, the scenario of, of, of mediation, which I think is what Maduro wants to push this to. Juan Guaido, you know, as, as you correctly stated, he doesn't have the power. I mean, he has the legitimacy. He has the recognition of more than 50 governments worldwide. So he is the legitimate president, but he doesn't have the guns. So he doesn't. Uh, and a lot of people are, are, are waiting to see if the armed forces flip and, and maybe not the entire armed forces, but a portion of sure, them. And the they region. start to back. So, yeah. Correct. They start to back Guaido, but that would create a civil war scenario. If that happens, then you will see the serious scenario where you have one faction of the Venezuelan government fighting another faction of the Venezuelan government, and that will lead to bloodshed. And, and, and what I'm most concerned about, that will lead to more refugees, because I think the refugees is the critical point, at least from the U.S. perspective, of where this could turn into a regional crisis. So, yeah, I want, I want to get to that a little later, because I want to bring this back to, you know, why we should care but yeah. just uh, first understanding the players on the ground, could you explain a little bit more when you talk about, you know, because it sounds funny to a lot of people, Turkey on the ground, Iran on the ground, Russia on the ground, maybe China. Could you explain what it means just vividly, physically, what is going on there? And then if if what you're describing is true, doesn't that mean that the military anyway would have a hard time flipping if all those players are with Maduro. That's absolutely right, Daniel. And I think that's the, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, one of the reasons, I think the U.S. sanctions, economic and diplomatic pressure that they've applied on the regime uh, over the last two years has been focused on fracturing the military and, and telling the military, listen, you know, if you go with Maduro, there's going to be consequences. But if, if you don't, you know, we can find a way out. And most recently, Juan Guaido offered them amnesty, saying if you don't, you know, we're not going to penalize you for previous crimes in the past, which a lot of the military is involved in drug trafficking. So that strategy, but what they failed to, to, to calculate, what they failed in their calculus is that the military is not just worried about going to jail. They're worried about getting killed. So they don't want to face the Cubans, the Iranians, the Russians, and, and you know, if they you decide to, to, to break ranks. They don't want to get assassinated and executed. And I don't know if they really think the United States is going to run into Venezuela and save them. So that's one of the reasons I think you haven't seen this mass exodus or, or mass fracture within the military, because they're held almost literally by, by, by gunpoint by these external actors and these extra, you know, and, and these irregular actors like the ELN is a Colombian terrorist group that's very present in 12 states states throughout Venezuela. Hezbollah is, is president in some of those same states in, Venez in Venezuela. So the military, I don't think, has that ability. And this is the point I've been making to a lot of Even if the best case scenario, according to some U.S. Uh, policymakers, if the military were to rise up, all that creates is a civil war scenario, a civil war scenario that I don't even think the military would win. I think they would get uh, in a physical battle would get would get uh, overrun. By well, but the, but by what, do you, what do you mean forces. physical? Uh, I'm trying to figure out meaning. Well, yeah, let's, start, let's start with Russia. What, what, what does Russian presence, is that the Russian mafia or Russian soldiers? What does that look like? No. So, okay, we want to go one by one. So, so, the, so the, the ones that have physical forces on the ground would be the Cubans, 
the Cubans have a unit called the Avispas Negras, which is called the Black Wasps, who cut their teeth in the civil wars in Angola many years ago. Mm. And these are these are brutal assassination squads that know how to create destabilization. So that's one. You have Hezbollah. Uh, you know, we all know how Hezbollah operates and how they, they protected the Assad regime in Syria. And one of the interesting things in Venezuela, one of the reasons most intelligence analysts had a hard time finding where Hezbollah is in Venezuela is because you have this immigration scheme where they'd be able to provide cover through Venezuelan identities. So they may be Venezuelan surnames and Venezuelan passports mm-hmm. and IDs, but they're Hezbollah operatives. So that's that's two. And then you have uh, contractors, um, um, basically military mercenaries from Russia and from um, China that have battled experience in Syria and Ukraine. But now, now flying over to Venezuela, there was a Reuters report that came out uh, a few couple weeks ago that talked about uh, one one group called the Wagner Group, which is a group that uh, Russian military contractors that were uh, active in Syria and Ukraine, but that have now been uh, sent to Venezuela. You know, we started at, at SFS. We started getting reports of an increase in this activity and the increase of the infill of these external actors uh, in around November of last year. Now they've been in Venezuela for a while, but they increased the numbers. In November of last year, which kind of indicated to me that they're hardening the regime, uh, the fortifying it. Yeah, and we're going to link to that in show notes. I got it up in front of me. It's from five days ago, actually. Um, Kremlin-linked contractors help guard Venezuela's Maduro. Um, uh, Reuters article there. Um, wow. So that those are the physical forces on the ground. Actually, I forgot one. Um, the besiege from Iran. Uh, you know, the besiege is known, obviously, to quell the Green Revolution back in 2009. Mm-hmm. You know, in Syria, you know, working to defend the Assad regime. The besiege, particularly General Mohammad Reza Nagdi, who is the former commander of the besiege, who's now in Syria, he was in Venezuela in 2007-2008 in creating a foreign internal defense program for Venezuela for this specific moment, to be able to quell internal military uprisings and in, in popular protests. And so the besiege is, is also there. I mean, you talk about the worst actors in the world. And this is one of the things that we have to wake up and realize that, you know, Venezuela is not a simple solution. You're going to face some of the most hardened uh, battle-ready forces. That's just the physical forces on the ground. Now you got you got cyber, space, and all the other elements as well. And, and, and do each of these... So, so when we go back and forth and make the comparison to Syria, um, in Syria, it's not a matter of just groups. It's that each of these groups have constituencies, right? You have the Kurds, yeah. you have the Sunnis, you have the Alawites... Um, and they propel or fuel the popular support for whatever actors in the area. Uh, uh, do you have support for each of these groups there, or some of them are just kind of brought in by Maduro? So this is this is where I think it gets very interesting and maybe a little more complicated. But let me see if I can unpack this for you. So basically, there's two big groups I think that are looking in terms of population centers in in in, in Venezuela that are, that matter for these external actors that are coming in. One is the communist movements, the communist social movements. So that the Russians, the Chinese, the Cubans, they know how to control those movements. They know how to activate them. They've created uh, militias and, 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 and kind of street gangs and stuff, and they've trained them to be able to do these kind of actions. And they know how to use not just the physical force, but also the force of psychological warfare and also propaganda, the activists to go around and do the social media stuff. So the communist clandestine networks that exist in Venezuela are very much a population group that's going to be co-opted. And maybe not even co-opted is the right word. They're going to be utilized in this kind of a protracted asymmetric battle. But the other one, and this is the one that I've been pointing to for a long time and why I think the Iranians have a bigger role in this than people think, is because there's a Arab 
clandestine network that's mostly Syrian and Lebanese mm. and Venezuela that don't, you know, some of them are communists, some of them don't care, some of them have big businesses and they, and they just do their thing, but fundamentally are tied to the conflicts in the Middle East. And those population networks are very hidden and but explain a little bit of why you have these Arab nationalists that have rose to power within the Maduro regime. If you look at the top ranks of the Maduro regime, and I know we spoke about him on your show before, sure. Trek El Aysami, Trek El Aysami, you know, obviously not a very Venezuelan name. He's <laughs> probably the most powerful man in Venezuela. He is the former vice president. He's the minister of industry and national production, which means he controls the economy. He's in charge of the National Guard. He's he's. The, the direct link to Turkey, Iran, and Russia. And so he he's an individual, if you study his networks, uh, are, are, are in these population centers. Another individual, Tarek William Saab, another very Venezuelan-sounding name uh, of Syrian-Lebanese origin. He's the attorney general of Venezuela, so he controls the law of the land. He's the one providing the so-called indictments against these politicians so that they can do the political repression. So the Arab network, I think, is very big, very important. And that's something that Iran has learned in the Middle East is if they use their you know, IRGC and their, their, their Hezbollah pro- elements that they can infiltrate the Arabs and then and use the Arab power to be able to control the Middle East. I think they could do somewhat the same in Venezuela. So, so is it true that, you know, just to be consistent with the position we've taken here, you know, for a while we've been bemoaning the fact that we've invested too many failed carrots and sticks and certainly uh, trillions of dollars of military operations, live lo- lives lost in these dumpster fires, uh, tribal warfares that really don't affect us as much as immigration and homeland security does, which we ignore, um, and that how we should have invested all those years with more carrot and sticks in our own backyard in Latin America. So on the one hand, you'd say, well, you know, well, Daniel, this is your time. Venezuela, you got an opportunity here. Shouldn't we be doing it here? But so... In fact, what we're saying is the opposite, but it's the same theme, that because we failed for so long, it is another Syria, and there's not much we can do now. Yes, so that's a great way to look at it. I think that's exactly, if you just want to like extend it. So in the Middle East, right, there wasn't a whole lot we could do in the Middle East, although a lot of people with you know, infinite wisdom said we should get involved, we should do it, and, and the results have been lackluster at best. So you extend that to Latin America, and now... That conflict's already in Latin America. Venezuela is the first one. It's good. There's going to be others. But let's, let's just take Venezuela. So now Venezuela is pretty much lost. And, uh, you know, there's people saying, now we need to get in Venezuela. We need to save Venezuela. Well, what about Bolivia? What about Nicaragua? What about Mexico? That's the real of the game changer. And oh, so, yeah. you know, we can't uh, try to save Venezuela at the risk of losing the rest of Latin America. We have to look at this very much at a macro perspective. And I guarantee the Russians, Iranians, and the Chinese, they have that macro perspective. They have all these poker chips in place. And so they, uh, they will move, activate other conflicts. We see in Nicaragua has already kind of showed us a little sample of that last year, but they will activate other conflicts if we get too involved in in Venezuela. So I think this is one of the things that we have to look at. Obviously, we have to you know help to some level the people of Venezuela, but the best way we can help them is ensuring that their conflict doesn't you know spark a regional war, and that's where the refugees come in because I think that's the number one concern from U.S. national security perspective is to make sure that the refugees don't hit an untenable amount. It's about 3 million right now, which is horrible, but it's not unmanageable. But if it goes to 6 million, which many project would be by the middle of the year, or 10 million, as some are projecting by the end of this year and beginning of next year, 2020, that is a horrible. That that would make Venezuela the number one refugee crisis in the world. 
And that's, you know, 1,200 miles from the U.S. shore. So they're undoubtedly going to start getting into the United States. Uh, and if our border security isn't uh, uh, up to snuff, then, you know, that's going to just add to the compound of the Central America crisis. Oh, my gosh. I can only imagine, you know, our audience is very familiar with the months of work we've done on the cartels. Um, you yeah. could only imagine the entire new dimension of business model that will be created for the cartels, what they did with the Central Americans, if you opened up a new front uh, with Venezuela. Yes, absolutely. So, and I think that's very much part of this uh, destabilization strategy that the, you know, they have a name in, in this Russia, Iran, China. You know, I know all around the world they don't always work together, but in Latin America, they cooperate quite a bit and they, they call themselves the multipolar force. And according to military documents that I've seen um, in, in, in Venezuela. So, you know, this multipolar force has a strategy of destabilization and the goal is to delegitimize the United States. The goal is to push the United States out of our own backyard. So they want us to be not relevant anywhere in the world, including where we live. So, so the, the question is, the question I have to you now is, you know, what do we do after so many years of failures where we could have asserted ourselves in Latin America for, for cheaper, a much cheaper price um, and preempted a lot of this subversion from Russia, China, Iran, um, you know, and other allies of the uh, local socialists like in, in Cuba what do we do? You know, when you have John Bolton put out on Twitter today, we denounce a legitimate former Venezuelan attorney general's threats against President Juan Guaido. Let me reiterate, there will be serious consequences for those who attempt to subvert democracy and harm Guaido. What could what cards does he have to play now? So I think, uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure what the, uh, you know, Ambassador Bolton's uh, uh, preparing to do. I mean, I think there's a little psychological warfare also going on between the National Security Council and the Maduro regime. I mean, a lot of reporters report about this uh, yellow pad that he had during the press conference that he gave at the White House <laughs> that had written down that 5,000 troops to Colombia. That's not a mistake. <laughs> there's no way he would have leaked that if he meant to cover it up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I think that was a bit of psychological warfare, just like how the Russians are like to put out that they're sending contractors and all these things to the to Venezuela. I think the U.S. is saying, well, look, we got our own people ready to go. If you want. And so there's a little bit of that, which is normal in a low-intensity conflict, which right now we still are in the low-intensity side of the conflict. So psychological warfare is a big part of it. But to your question, actually, I think so. there's two things. One is, the first is we have to get our priorities in order. And I think this is long overdue uh, for U.S. national security experts, uh, policymakers, and also foreign policy. Uh, we have to start figuring out that Latin America is the most important area, theater, region of interest for, for, for the United States national security interests. You don't make America great again unless you have the Americas great again. And so you can't have a good uh country unless you have a good neighborhood. And I think that concept needs to be pushed among the American people, the electorate, and by extension, obviously, the policymakers that, that draft these, these priorities. So we need to, you know, Middle East adventurism, you know, pivots to Asia, you know, or Europe, shenanigans. I mean, those are, I don't say they're not important. They're important for sure, but we have to prioritize this. The second piece, I think, is that we have to wage uh, an effort on public opinion. That's that's really where asymmetric wars are fought. They're fought on public opinion. But we have to be clear on what, what we're trying to sway public opinion towards which direction. And right now, as you know, the, the Monroe Doctrine has been completely thrown out the window. And so Russia, Iran, China, Turkey are entrenched in uh, different countries in Latin America, and they're advancing on others. We need to work with our partners to reject that. We, the, you know, It's not going to be the United States that says you know, we don't want 
these uh, advancements in our side of the world. It's the Latin Americans that need to say it. And I think you can achieve that with Iran to some level because you know, Iran's very subversive and so they don't, they're not that popular. But, you know, good luck getting the Argentinians to t- say no to China <laughs> or, or getting the Chileans. And, and, you know, and that's the part where we lost a lot of territory. If you went back 20 years ago, we could have done that. But now China is a major economic player. Russia is a major military player. And so we have to c- work with our Latin American partners to sway public opinion to say we, this is not the legitimate uh, partner in, in, in your side of the world, which some of that work has already started under the Trump administration. I think the, under the Obama administration, we lost a lot of ground, but under the Trump administration, some of that work's already started, but much more needs to be done. And what we have to be careful is, because if we do anything militarily in Venezuela, this is what's going to happen. The entire Latin America will turn against the United States. I could, no, no one in Latin America wants, uh, I mean, the people in Venezuela would cheerily, you know, just like in the people in Iraq, would love it if we could depose a dictator. But that's, you know, a few months. Then what happens after that? And the entire Latin America will go back to these old flashbacks of the Bay of Pigs and other other kinds of, you know, you know. For many people, probably uh, young people today, this is kind of just like history book lessons. But they'll relive those lessons of failed CIA coups in Latin America, and we have to be careful that we don't fall into that trap, that we don't pr- try to protract that image, because we're not that. Uh, but we have to do that with uh, with asymmetric force. No, exactly. You're saying you have to fight asymmetrical warfare with asymmetrical warfare. Correct, um, correct. You know, the carrot and stick approach, yeah, military, meaning the same reasons why it's not working in the Middle East, it's not going to work in, in this environment. Um, but, you know, I think there, I actually think there is more potential things could work in this part of the hemisphere than the Middle East for a number of religious reasons if yeah. we would only get our stuff in, 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 uh, in, in a row, which is what I wanted to bring you to um, to close out the show, which is Mexico. Nothing... I've always said there's no country that is more important to us geopolitically than Mexico. There is nothing, nothing around. There is no entity around. I'm a big hawk on Islamic terror, but at the end of the day, nothing has done to us what the cartels have. Nothing has been responsible for more fiscal charges, diseases, death, um, criminal aliens, Problems at the border. I mean, the stuff I was talking about on the show yesterday, Hidalgo County, New Mexico, is is overrun now. Um, I want to see if you think there's any potential with the new leadership in Mexico, with the cartels becoming so brutal and killing so many Mexicans. And given that the migration is mainly Central American, not Mexican. So they're, you know, the people are kind of getting ticked off. Public opinion, you know, seems to have warmed a little bit relatively, you know, it's still bad, but warmed a little bit more to Trump and understanding where he's coming from because they're dealing with it. Do you think there's any potential for us to be able to work with AMLO on going after the cartels? After the cartels, I think there is some potential uh, law enforcement cooperation, uh, defense cooperation. I think that some of that's institutional at this point where their agencies depend on the support from the United States on many of these areas. And I don't think uh, AMLO is going to break that uh, because, he, he, I mean, frankly, he would have uh, internal uh, problems and, and I don't think he wants that. So I think on that level, yes. But I am concerned that on the political level, which extends at the end of the day, my my all my experience in Latin America, what it's taught me is you can have all the tactical 
bilateral cooperation that you you need. But if you don't have the political will, it really doesn't amount to everything. You can't. You're not going to stop the cartels with just tactical manhunting operations that can break down cartel leaders. You really need to turn the tide of the country, and that takes political will. And what I'm worried about, like, is a clear representation is when you know just to kind of wrap it with the Venezuela issue. You know, when when um, you know the countries pronounce themselves as to which side of the fence they're going to sit on. Are they going to support the illegitimate dictatorship of Nicolas Maduro, or are they going to support the legitimate constitutional president of interim president of Juan Guaido? Of of the countries in the Lima Group, which is a collection of Latin American countries that have been working the Venezuela issue, the only one that recognizes Nicolas Maduro is Mexico. <laughs> and that to me shows me that. AMLO is not going to play 100% with the United States on, on all these issues. And AMLO, you know, these things work through networks. And AMLO wasn't just brought to power by his own charm and his good grace. Sure. He was brought to power by a network that's very active in Latin America that's tied to political and, actors. And, 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 and Joseph, no, I totally get. I'm not like all of a sudden thinking like AMLO is like Bolsonaro. No, I mean, he's a big leftist. Yeah. But, yeah. but my understanding, and tell me if you disagree, is that when it comes to you know, when, when I say Western countries, you know, non-Western countries are not North, um, you know, America, Canada and Europe. Their leftists are different than our type of leftists. Our leftists subvert our own country, whereas yeah. I, I get he's a leftist. I get he likes socialism. I get he's a, a ally with Maduro. But what I'm saying, what the cartels, their nourishment now, unlike in previous decades, is not fundamentally with the Mexican migration. It's the Central American yeah. migration and they don't like them. So that and yeah. AMLO clearly I mean, doesn't that, like that. Yeah, well, what I'm trying to impress upon you, Daniel, is that there's a geopolitical element to even drug cartels. Drug cartels, just like terrorist groups, are just tactical things that you can use as specific en- entities to create the kind of operations you want to have. Uh-huh. So, like, yeah, there's, the drug cartels don't, don't always know this. The drug cartels are just trying to make money and do their thing, but they're used, you know, uh, for specific things. And so, I think in that sense, what I'm, what I'm trying to impress upon you is, that I actually see AMLO going more the direction of China and Russia. Uh, uh, and, and trying to balance wow. that out with the United States so he doesn't depend on the United States, which could create situations where the drug cartels are empowered. Now, he's not going to – He what I'm trying to say is just very basically, he may present an image that he's fighting the drug cartels, and they may capture some Chapo Guzmans and other drug cartel leaders, but on a big holistic level, he's not going to go after the entire problem set because he's going to align with the bad guys. <laughs> So that's what but, I'm, but, but, uh, I'm worried about. But is he only aligning with the bad guys because isn't it self-fulfilling? We don't we don't assert ourselves. Meaning if I put myself in these guys' shoes, um, things are changing a little bit with the Trump administration. But fundamentally, you look long term, America doesn't give a damn about it. They don't care about what's going on there. They don't care about illegal immigration. They don't care about the drugs. Um, as long as a suitcase bomb is not set off in Tucson, they're not going to turn their eyes southward. That would be the impression I would get. So look, if you got Iran, Turkey, and Russia and China there, hey, I'm going to go with the big players. I'm going to go with the cartels. I'm not going to try to fight the cartels and commit suicide. But if we made it clear that, forget about Latin American affairs, because of our own sovereignty, we're done. We've had it, and we're going after the cartels. Wouldn't that then change the equilibrium there? I think if we if we played a hard approach and basically told the Mexican government AMLO that you know we we, we are not going to we have a zero tolerance policy with drug trafficking zero tolerance policy with illegal migration and we're going to tap this I I agree with you I think he's not going to fight us on that yeah um, I think he'll, he'll 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 cooperate on it 
granted, you know, just like, uh, you know, as President Reagan would say, trust but verify. So we'd have to verify all the action that the Mexican government is doing to be able to partner with us on these elements. But I, again, I, I see that scenario taking place. I think it's, but how much impact can you have in the long term? Is that going to actually stop this? Is it going to just do provide the balloon effect where we move it back over to the Caribbean? Because drug trafficking wasn't historically moving through Mexico. It was historically moving to the Caribbean if you go back to the 90s. But you know, with the you know Plan Colombia and all this other tr- clamping down on the Caribbean tra- cocaine trafficking, and moved over to uh, Mexico. Is it is this going to just balloon sure. effect into somewhere but, but, but else? But all the I human we, smuggling, all the human smuggling. Yeah, is... you know, the, the, the human trafficking and all the the border issues. Uh, I think that that part is, and I think I think the Trump administration is is making inroads on on that level. I mean, with the caravans, uh, as bad as they were, actually, I think they helped illuminate. You know how bad this is for Mexico, uh, because yes, I mean, they they got yes. the short end of the stick. I mean, the caravans they didn't make it across the border, and they just stuck in Tijuana. So uh, now the Tijuana government is on. You know, because I I found it, I found it very fascinating that, and I'm trying to get more information about. It. I don't know if you have information you could share with us, but that evidently they did secure some sort of commitment from AMLO that they are now returning the bogus asylees with certain exceptions, they're starting it at San Diego, but I was told that at least, you know, this is what DHS was saying, that they're going to expand it elsewhere to have them sit in Mexico um, during the duration of the proceedings, which take a year or so, and the hope would be then, therefore, they wouldn't come because it's no longer a free ride that you just get to stay in America. To me, I don't know the details behind that, but that has to show there's some degree of cooperation there on the Mexican side. You know, you're right. Actually, um, this next, this the second wave, or if you want to call it that, the, the latest wave of caravans that have popped up uh, in this year, in, in 2019, as opposed to the caravans that popped up in October, November of last year, these caravans are actually moving uh, with m- much less momentum uh, than they were before because they, 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 what they realize is the incentives are different. Uh, they all know the, the migrants in the caravans. They all know that if they get to Mexico, it's just, just a wait, wait and see approach. Uh, so there's not this like you know false promise that they're going to get into the to the United States. Uh, and I think that is the Mexican government has been providing uh, disincentives for them to stay in Mexico, and has also been providing them incentives to go back to their home countries, including I think uh, transportation back to their home countries. So uh, what you're seeing with the second round of caravans is that they are not necessarily as volatile as the first one was. And the first one really moved. I mean, you remember that. We were, I think we talked about it on your show where they just pushed up as fast as possible north and just sure. kind of bulldozed everything along their way. Uh, and all the media kind of kind of followed it. So, yeah, I, I, like I said, I think there's cooperation. I mean, I think one of the things that AMLO realized, has realized and continue to realize is that it's not as easy to govern as it is to you know, run for a campaign. And when you govern, there's a lot of f- variables that are in play, a lot of <laughs> big money. I mean, the U.S. is the largest trade partner to Mexico. They can't just destroy that relationship. But I, I want to keep an, a, a watchful eye on AMLO and his and his other alliances that he starts to form. Because of course. Now, I would have I would have expected him to dis, dis, disavow Maduro because that, to me, wasn't a show of just Maduro. That was a show of he's looking at the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese, and he's trying oh, to probably make two backdoor deals as well. You just remind me of something. Could you just briefly explain? Because I'm, I'm a little bit surprised. What about the rest of the Bolivar alliance? You know, the the alliance of bad guys, uh, Bolivia, yeah. Ecuador, Uruguay. Um, why why are they tossing Maduro overboard? They're not. Um, they're, so the Bolivarian alliance is, you know, this kind of uh, political power block that was created in 2004 by Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro. You know, it's waned in their political influence, but they're st- strong and steady in their control of their countries. I mean, Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, the Ortega regime is 
he's got an iron grip on Nicaragua, and, and we've seen some of that, some of the outflows of that, where he's done his own political repression, and there's their own little mini refugee crisis happening in Nicaragua. Bolivia, the the Evo Morales, you know, he's way far in South America, but that's to me, Bolivia is probably the most concerning country out of all of them, including Venezuela, because it's a black box for our intelligence community. We don't really know what's going on there, and of everything that's happening in Bolivia, the Iranians, the Russians, they're more entrenched in Bolivia than they are anywhere else in Latin America, and that country, their their dictator, Evo Morales, probably has a stronger grip on on the political and pretty much the societal conditions than pretty much any of the other dictators. So while these guys, these, these dictators, they're not necessarily spreading themselves politically, rhetorically, as much as they used to be under Hugo Chavez, they still have an iron grip on their countries, and they're using those countries now to move into another phase of that alliance or that revolution, the Bolivarian Revolution, mm. which is to create conflicts. It's not just about maintaining power. It's about creating conflicts. And and that was a little bit different than the past because in the past it was consolidating power. It was maintaining power. Now it's about pushing that, pushing their conflicts out and creating regional destabilization. That's why in Latin America you're starting to see all these little fires pop up everywhere. Caravans, Nicaragua, drug trafficking, you know, tri-border area, Venezuela, Bolivia. It, it that's and Those aren't random peace things that are just happening at the same time and there's there's political forces pushing this so that that's what i wanted to end with today um just to go back to the caravans and where it's coming from if you could explain a little bit because we've had a lot of experts on the immigration side the um the cartel side and we know where it's not coming from. So the, the cartels, they like what we call the silent caravans. They like yeah. you know, just the endless you know hundreds at a time that they throw at our border agents and they bring in their stuff. They control the flow. Um, but they actually hate the caravans because you know it actually it forces our political leadership to deal with it. Um, I, I've heard from two of my sources that the the Gulf Cartel actually got a hold of some of these guys, tied them up, and threatened to behead them uh, because they were so pissed off. They ultimately let them go, but they really wanted to send a, a sign there. So it's definitely not the cartels. Where are so who who's pushing them? So you you, you raise a great point. I had the same uh, perspective, and you know I had some of the same sources tell me this similar information. Where the cartels had nothing to gain from these caravans. It really just screwed up their business model, and then then they're pretty pissed about it. Um, to me. From what I looked at the caravans last year and continue to look at this year, which we're actually having an event on February 12th about the caravans and specifically to address what are these caravans and who's and who's driving this. I look at the same phenomenon that we've been talking about your whole show, um, Venice, this alliance, the Bolivarian Alliance, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, Bolivia. Uh, I have some information, although it's not completely analyzed or verified, that show there was discussions about this kind of mass migration happening in uh, uh, meetings uh, earlier this in 2018 in Bolivia. Uh, other uh, separate but uh, somewhat related meetings in Venezuela where the former president of Honduras, Mel Zelaya, traveled to these countries overtly to give a public speech on socialism or whatever he's trying to talk about, but had you know backdoor meetings that uh, we, we, we started to examine. So what I look at it is I look at it from a political lens and saying that these are the same political forces. But if you look at the Bolivarian Alliance, to be honest, if it's just those countries, that's not a big deal. The reason those countries are a problem is because they, they've aligned themselves with uh, global powers, uh, uh, countries that are much more capable uh, economically, militarily, and, and, and these kind of operations. And so I honestly believe America, Latin America, you know, we have three problems. That's Russia, Iran, and China. Uh, and and those caravans, I think, are an extension of that. Yeah, so this is more of a broader geopolitical statecraft subversion 
rather than the cartels, from, which is, you know, and, and Daniel, from a, from a grand strategy perspective, and this is something, you know, my analysts have been pinpointing on more and more as we kind of advance on our, on our outlook. The concept of people without borders, the concept of open borders seems to be a very big uh, aspect of the grand strategy of how to redraw the map in Latin America. I mean, the concept in Venezuela, I mean, for people that want to know what the end game in Venezuela, well, it's to redraw what Venezuela looks like. Colombia basically doesn't exist, the Colombian border. Yeah, Colombia doesn't exist. Panama doesn't exist. They encroach upon the Panama Canal. They they shut market access to the United States. There's a grand strategy to this, but in order to get there, they need to they need to challenge the concept of borders, and that is I think something that you can hear about you hear it domestically with a, a lot of the leftist movements here and politicians in Congress, and you hear it internationally with these elements that are talking about caravans or migration or refugees, about just basically opening up the borders so that the people cannot have or countries cannot have state sovereignty over who they let into their country. It's a to me I've seen that as a very very powerful weapon that's being utilized by these same global forces that we're talking about on your show. Wow, that's a very powerful thought when you look at Western leftists and then you look at you know what the folks are doing in places like Bolivia and uh, Venezuela. Wow, that, that really is powerful. Look, you know, this is engaging as always. And with all these issues tying together drugs, terrorism, Latin America, Mexico, the cartels, immigration, we're definitely going to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this briefing. Um, and uh, can't wait to see you at, at that event, by the way. In February. Awesome. Yep. Ding. Good great, stuff. Great to talk, and we'll look forward to seeing you. There you go, folks. That was Joseph Humeyer. He is just a wellspring of knowledge and my go-to guy on all things Latin America, caravans, certainly Venezuela. Hope you guys enjoyed that because I really haven't had time to get into this. But again, the bottom line is, like we said, that you know this is what happens when we go so long allowing the Russians to get involved and the Chinese and the Iranians and everything and destabilize our own region. Um, but once they've done it to just come in there with troops, it's just like he said, it's asymmetrical warfare. The same reasons it's not going to work elsewhere when you have constituencies and you have different players there. Um, it's just going to get us marred in, in, in an untenable situation. It's the same thing here. Now, the best we can do, as he said, is just make sure we don't have a refugee problem. We just, again, it all comes back to America. And that's what we're going to continue with. You know, there, there is just so much more news on just 10 more illegal aliens working for cartels in Indiana, um, indicted on drug charges. You have the FBI just put out an alert on a Gulf cartel member who's not at the border, but around the Indianapolis area, armed and dangerous. ICE arrested 118 in New York this week. So many of them with sex offenses that were let go by local law enforcement. Again, if they understood the severity of what goes on in the interior of our country, the criminal alien problem, the cartel problem, it would realign American politics, and that's the best I can do. So I'm working on a very long piece I'm going to have out making the case for designating the cartels as terrorists. We're going to be working on more what's going on at the border, particularly in New Mexico. Everything we predicted is now out, out in the open. This is always going to be your cutting-edge show. Thanks so much for really growing the show, the audience, particularly the last month. Really appreciate it. 
We're just getting started this week. I will be out next week on our 10th anniversary delayed honeymoon. You know, we were um we were poor when we got married, so our honeymoon was a camping trip to West Virginia. So it's a little bit, you know, juiced up. We're going to Florida. Um, we'll let you know towards the end of the week, but I'll be out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Let me know your comments, concerns, and thoughts. Email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at armconservative. God bless y'all. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conscience.